It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Missing Moro Murray podcast. How are you tonight, Lance? I'm doing very well. How are you, Tim? Doing great tonight. For this episode, we have Jordan Bonaparte from the Nighttime Podcast on as a guest, and we have a pretty casual conversation with him. We talk about Moro Murray. We talk about Emma Philipoff and a little bit about Brianna Maitland as well. Yeah, the casual is a good way to put it. It's a really good relationship that we have established with Jordan and the excellent podcast, nighttime podcast. Uh, good relationship there. Fun to talk to. Easy to talk to. And if you happen to consume this show on YouTube, you are in luck because we have more video than normal for this episode. We have a video of the three of us uh, having the conversation, and we also sprinkle in some pictures. So check that out. And uh, we wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Check out blueapron.com slash missing for your first three meals free with free shipping. And this episode is also brought to you by a new sponsor called Bloom That. That's B-L-O-O-M-T-H-A-T. That is an online flower delivery service. Also, check out our new podcast called Crawl Space that is launching tomorrow, Wednesday, February 1st. We're dropping our first episode so check us out. We are on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, and probably some other sites. So check us out there. Also on Twitter at CrawlSpacePod. And we're very excited about CrawlSpace. We're going to be looking into several different cases, the first of which being the disappearance of Brianna Maitland. Brianna Maitland went missing in 2004, about a month after Mora, in Montgomery, Vermont. Okay, so now we'll play the audio with Jordan Bonaparte. Check out the Nighttime Podcast. You can find him on Twitter at Nighttime Pod. Welcome to the podcast, Jordan Bonaparte from the Nighttime Podcast. How's it going? It's going fantastic. It's a pleasure to, to be joining you both. Missing Maura Murray, I would I can comfortably say, is my favorite podcast. 
Oh, well, thank you very much. Wow. Thank you very much. The nighttime podcast is uh, right up there among our favorites as well. Yes, absolutely. I love it. Love the mysteries you delve into and uh, very interesting. Obviously, the Emma Philippoff uh, coverage that you've done is very kind of close to our hearts because it is about a missing person. How was your experience covering the Maura Murray case? It was interesting. It was a, a bit of a roller coaster. I, I had never heard of Maura's case. And you had mentioned where um, some people may think that Emma is the Canadian Maura case and, and whatnot. I had never heard of Maura Murray's disappearance until after I had first covered Emma Philippoff's disappearance. Lots of people had started emailing me and contacting me saying, you know, sometime down the road, you should cover Maura Murray's. And it was actually a listener of yours, Aurelia, who is the most vocal, and she encouraged me to check out the first episode of your show. Um, when I had listened to the first episode of, of Missing More Murray, I was hooked immediately. And at that time, I was releasing one episode a week of my podcast. So pretty much whatever my topic for the week would be, I would just obsess about that for the week. But the, what really put me off the rails was I did nothing that week aside from listen to Missing Maura Murray. And that was what motivated me to, to do my first episode on Maura Murray's disappearance. It was for that week to a month, well, week to two or three weeks, I was just uh, eat, sleeping, and breathing Maura Murray's story and listening to your podcast. So I had no choice but to, to cover it. Uh, I was able to justify it by discussing the Canadian angle where some of the theories, I believe Renner was responsible mainly for the theory that she may have fled to Canada. My podcast is a little unique where I cover just stories set in and around Atlantic Canada, which is um, very close to where, where, more, where Maura disappeared. So I covered the case um, with your help. Uh, it was for people who listen to your show, it would be seen as a very uh, basic introduction where the majority of my listeners would never have known Maura Murray's uh, story. So I really just covered the basics. And then I had both of you join me to give a bit more in-depth information. And as far as the coverage of it, um, I was surprised after the episodes were released with the amount of feedback I got. I've received emails from all over the world uh, about Morris case, more so I think than any other case that I've covered, with the exception of maybe Emma Philippoff's, which I've covered extensively. But Morris case, it's certainly known all over the world. I'm shocked by how passionate and dedicated the community that are that is discussing her case is again still to this day i think actually probably in the last week i've probably received three or four emails specific to my coverage of mora that i did probably eight months ago now those emails um are they are the emails that that present to you what their theory is about more murray or is it suggestions to you because i find we get a lot of suggestions like you need to look at this angle and you need to look at this angle just curious if you get similar emails as we do uh i do i get i get some of that i get a lot of canadian listeners who are thanking me for covering the story where they'll say and it's often something like um just listen to your episode on maura murray i'm now binging on missing maura murray thanks for covering it I'll get a lot of emails comparing Mora with Emma um, as far as their disappearances go. I get uh, I don't get as as many theories 
um, emails uh, or, you know, places to look. I, I think people, your show is, is more investigating it. So I could see why you, why you get it. One thing that um, listeners of your show may find entertaining uh, and don't roll your eyes yet, but my show covers, aside from missing persons and true crime, I cover paranormal and UFO sightings and all sorts of weird and wonderful things that happen in my part of the, the country. But uh, I've received several emails from people who listen to my show specifically for my paranormal coverage that um, will mention the fact that where Mora went missing was only about 20 miles from the world-famous Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction. Just saying. Yeah. We're actually going to cover the Benny and Barney Hill abduction in uh, in our next episode, just to see if it's related to Maura Mari or not. Are you serious? Okay. <laughs> no. Uh, all right. I didn't think so. But every time I every time I get that email, I will uh, I will laugh. But uh, I don't get the um, you should look into this. More so, what I get is people either. Actually, one thing I do get often is people critical of the various guests that I have related to Mora's disappearance. I've received um, so I've done two episodes on it. The first was the introduction with uh, with the two of you as my guests. The second looked a little bit deeper into the case, but mainly it looked at how many different theories there are, um, all based on the same details. So I chose two contrasting guests, the, that being uh, John Smith. And James Renner. I get a lot of emails from people who hate John Smith, James Renner, or Tim and Lance from Missing Maura Murray. Whoa! Uh, <laughs> bombshell. Um, but that has been my experience. It seems like it's a, the, the community uh, surrounding this disappearance, and by community I mean the, pe the people online, the armchair detectives and the people who follow the case, they seem to have very strong opinions on the various players involved the various theories involved and it it can get quite personal and i see that in some of the communication i have with people what was it like for you to talk to both john john smith and james renner um for one episode because uh, obviously those two uh do not agree on a lot of things so uh yeah what, what was that like i think uh they're they're great adversaries they're both uh, in their own way very unique very interesting guys both well spoken and they're both very knowledgeable about the case like them or hate them they both know what they're talking about it just ended up that they came up with very different theories using the same details and they're both very passionate about their theories i think my big regret is probably not having the three of us talk at the same time i start the episode with one guest and the episode with the second guest and really the the point of it was just to show the two uh competing theories or between between the two the two men uh, i think my experience including them both on the show uh, on, on the episode of my podcast and just my broader experience uh, reading about the case and you know and researching it and listening to, listening to your show the the missing the the Maura Murray case and the the people that surround it and the players to the case to me it seems a lot like my favorite television show Twin Peaks Maura Murray being Laura Palmer uh, John Smith and and Renner would would fit right in in Twin Peaks for anyone who, who's seen the show they may know what what I'm talking about 
but the, the the experience with the two of them, I, I have great appreciation for both both guys. I fully support their theories that they are so passionate, so passionately behind. Um, but I don't know if I'd want to be locked in a room with the two of them. Not to get you <laughs> in any hot water with either one of them, but do you think that they have embraced the characters that they that's being put out there i because they have become i've you know tim and i know both of them aside from working on the Maura murray case they're both really good guys they're 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 good guys they'll you know they're they're fun to hang out with and they'll do anything for you if if you need a favor but do you think that they have seen what what their characters have become among this community and and embraced it for for better or worse? I've thought of that, but really when I hear them talk and when I speak to them, they both seem very genuine with with what they're saying and and I've seen John Smith fight it out with people on Twitter and I don't know if he's just doing that. I don't believe he's just doing that for fun. I think he fully stands he fully believes in in the things he's saying. Same goes for Renner. The only thing with with Renner is he is a writer and he is he has a book for sale related to this case. So he could be seen as having more to gain by you know playing a character and whatnot. That said, um, when you read what people say about him online uh, and he keeps coming back, I don't know. He must have an inner strength that I can't even imagine. But I believe. Um, I believe the two of them, they likely know their role or their, their characters in the story and have accepted that, but I don't believe there's anything fake about either of them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's absolutely anything fake about them either, and I'm not sure that they do know uh, their role as, like, I don't think Lance and I really fully grasp uh, the role that we have. I think it might be a little too difficult to uh, see yourself in that perspective it's it's really unique that you find these characters in a case like this who wear their heart on their sleeve so passionately and at some point i personally think at some point those two will come together we we saw it almost happen and yeah i i i feel like at some point there's there's going to be something that brings them together so i think any conversation anytime they're on a, a show anytime that they're their name is brought up. I think that's a. I think that's ultimately a good thing. Absolutely, they're they're both. Um, although they're doing it in much different ways, they're both working towards the same goal, and that's finding Mora, and in the meantime, spreading news of her story. Uh, so at, at the when you boil it down to its bare essentials, they're you know they're they're working towards similar goals. But again, up until uh, in, until it's boiled down, they have a lot of. Uh, there's a there's a lot of differences between between the two of them. As far as their differences are concerned, I know that both of them, if if the if the resolution came forward and she ran away, or it leaned more towards John Smith's theories, I know that both of them would just feel grateful that it was over, no matter what happens. I know John Smith. If if it was if it turns out that she ran away and it was James's theory, neither one of them. Even though James is trying to sell a book, I don't believe that they really want their theory to – they just want something to be resolved. I don't think it has anything to do with – A told you so moment. I told you so, yeah, ego moment, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. Although I will say the only time that they did kind of work together, that uh, what you alluded to, uh, they were sort of, they both kind of believed that uh, she had been met with foul play at that point. Um, so I, until they both get on the same conclusion page again, I don't really see that happening. Yeah, I feel like the case would be a lot more advanced at that point. But just seeing that moment happen where information was passed back and forth and they considered it. It did feel good when that happened, I will say. It did, yeah, yeah, yeah. One odd thing that came out of my coverage of of Mora's case through the two episodes is the one iTunes review that still is my worst. It burns me because I don't believe it's a review for me. I think it's a review for James Renner. Uh, I love James Renner, but this reviewer, I feel, doesn't. The subject of the review is Vanity Project. They say... And again, this is a review for my show, The Nighttime Podcast, which had James Renner as a guest for 15 minutes on one episode of 32. (laughs) (laughs) So vanity project. I had high hopes for this podcast, but found it provides very little information, favoring instead the creator's personal theories. Ethical concerns were raised by one series. It was the Maura Murray case, in which the host made vague references to the seedy past of the missing woman and her family, though no evidence was produced. The host concluded she had disappeared to escape to escape her past, probably due to safety concerns, and then the host proceeded to outline how hard he is trying to track her down. It's just upsetting that someone would come to a firm conclusion that a person had valid reasons to vanish and then feel justified to violate those wishes and outline publicly how methodically he's going about it. I unsubscribed. Mm. Well, it, it he th- that that reviewer is absolutely right about your show being a vanity project. <laughs> yeah, I feel dirty. I feel dirty talking to you. Yeah, it's just, it's just anyway. It's uh, that's, such an agenda. That's definitely for Renner. Do you, do you think? <laughs> I think I think it was probably geared more towards Renner. <laughs> yeah, it was probably. Uh, we should we should. It, it seemed like they missed the the mark on that one. Yeah, I think a lot of people who listen to and review podcasts, they um, they don't realize that it's often a couple of people in their basements putting things together, and they 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 look at you with the, through the same lens that they look at you know serial and the podcast by Gimlet and this sort of thing. Um, I that's what I kind of blame some of it on. What do you think? Since you've listened to uh, to the podcast, you've you've done episodes on Maura Murray. You've uh, undoubtedly looked into it online yourself. Um, what what are the most interesting aspects of the case to you? Well, a lot like the, uh, Emma's case that I that I cover so much. There's it's really gets boiled down to the the few options as to as to what became of of Maura. Again, we're left with the the theory that she ran away to start a new life. Maybe there was an abduction. It could have been, you know, intentionally going somewhere, possibly for a suicide, or perhaps she uh, succumbed to the elements as trying to, you know, escape the police or whoever was coming to her to her car. Really, um, it's a toss up for all of the theories to me. I think some signs about uh, her activities leading up to her disappearance to me, suicide would be consistent. I could I could see that fitting. I could see an abduction because it's a vulnerable girl on a you know a dark highway on a cold night. I could see her succumbing to the elements. Um, if she was drinking in the car, let's just say if you know if that was the case, 
maybe she fled the car thinking the police are on the way and she wanted to, you know, hide in the woods so she wasn't arrested for drunk driving. Maybe she had too much to drink and, you know, tripped and fell over something and cracked her head or, you know, that sort of thing can happen and has happened to people. As far as leaving to to intentionally to start a new life, that's the, the of the theories, the one that seems the least likely to me. I think given the amount of time that she was gone, Something should have happened by now that that would have had her found. I know if when people hear that, um, they'll defend that theory by citing various stories of people who did start new lives and lived a new life for 30 or 50 years or something. But that's extremely rare. I I think it would be harder to pull off than you think. Um, Some people believe she fled to Canada. I don't think that's likely at all. I know... um, here we have uh, like the government health care. Every time I go to the doctor's office or the hospital, I have to show my government, my health card and all that sort of thing. If even if she came to Canada and spent the last 13 years here, once or twice, she would have gotten, you know, a throat infection or an ear infection or something and had to go get like an antibiotic or something. I, I just can't see her living off the grid for that amount of time and not reaching out to somebody or making a mistake, like getting a speeding ticket or getting a throat infection and needing to go to the hospital. I don't know as what's most likely your guess is as good as mine. And and I think that's what gets a lot of people coming back to the story and it gets people talking online is all the theories kind of fit. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing uh, for me when it comes to whether or not she ran away, that just, that just means there was somebody else involved. Mm-hmm. So now there's now there's Mora and at least one more person who who isn't saying anything. And that person certainly needs a lot of convincing to not say anything at this point. To not just say, listen, she's she's out there. Like she's out there, she's an adult. All she did was really abandon her car, you know, fine her for that, but let's just stop this. Because mm-hmm. like I I don't wanna I don't wanna like I don't I don't wanna overplay what I think the reach is of well, first James's blog and the show and all the talk that's out there, but I I would like to think that word has gotten to somebody who knows where she would be, and I just don't think that's happened. And I don't see what her motivation would be to stay hidden this long. Maybe a, a young girl or a guy or whoever having a bad time, it may seem like a good idea. Like, and by a bad time, I mean having a lot of stress in your life. It may seem like a good idea to you know to run away and start over. But as you mature, maybe you would feel like I'm just going to email my parents and go back, you know, that sort of thing. And I just can't, I, when I play it through in my head, I just can't see that happening. But again, it, it has happened before, so it is possible. Yep, certainly is. In the between the, the the two shows here, um, we have three missing young women. We have Mora, we have Emma, and we have Brianna, who Tim and I have just started to get into. I, I would love to hear what your 
feeling is what how how you see them connected not so much like criminally connected you know what i'm saying connected in a uh in in backgrounds uh, similarities in family similarities in the investigation or dissimilarities i just want to hear your thoughts on the kind of the the, the trifecta of those uh, of the three cases all three of them really seem to be young girls from good families they all seem to be regular smart people one thing that they all have in common is leading up to their disappearance, there seemed to be lots of unusual stuff going on in their lives. So, of course, with Mora, we all know she had maybe packed up some stuff. She was calling the vacation destinations and, you know, maybe she bought alcohol, all that sort of thing. With Emma Philippos' disappearance, not only in the days leading up to it, but the day of her disappearance she did a whole bunch of strange, strange things like bought a prepaid credit card, bought the, bought a cell phone, um, got in a cab and dro- drove for a short amount of time before just getting out because she, you know, for, for an unknown reason, basically. Uh, so there's strange stuff going up on their, in their lives just prior to the disappearance with Brianna Maitland. She had, uh, as Tarek uh, described in his fantastic French Canadian accent, uh, he described she had he had the the she had the fight with the other girls, and maybe she knew that people were after her. But they all had a lot going on just leading up to up to the disappearances. With Emma and Mora, there are hints, in my opinion, of of the possibility for mental health problems. With Emma Filipov, much more so. It's it's clear that she had a, a mental health issue that was getting increasingly more severe leading up to her disappearance. Maybe I'm projecting my coverage of Emma on Mora's case, but were Mora's activities leading up to her disappearance, um, they're questionable and they don't make a lot of sense. Then I hear the story of her um, leaving her job at the door at the dorm room upset. It makes me wonder if maybe she was suffering uh, in some way mentally. I've, I'm not an expert and don't have any real reason to say that about Mora. Um, with the ex- only, I'm only basing that on what I heard on on your show and what I read online. But I think there is some hints of of uh, of mental health problems. I don't know enough about Brianna Maitland's case to say if that was the case there. They're all left with the same end results as well that I just mentioned. With with all of that description that you gave us, do you find it fascinating or have you ever realized, and this might be a question for Tim as well, and I didn't realize it until you started explaining it, that this is the groundswork for being a a, a profiler where do you... Are, are you fascinated that you're, you're you start to like work your brain in a way where you're making the connections between the families and the lives and the situations of these three young women? And I mean, you're, we're, we're profiling and it's kind of frightening, right? We have it, it, we're learning at the at the seat of our pants and and these are real situations. But I feel like not to pat ourselves on the back, but I feel like we're like three of the most level headed people doing this i i haven't really thought about it myself but now that you say it i I see it i think really with me i'm just a my personality i'm an analytical type of person so when i see a a mystery and i think maybe this is why i'm so fascinated with mysteries be it a missing person or whatever sort of mystery it is i just like to look at all the pieces and try to put them together and 
when I'm walking to work and it's, you know, and I, I could be stressing about my car payments or whatever. Instead, I'm trying to think about the various mysteries that I occupy my mind with. So I'm always trying to put them together and, and see what fits. I don't really see myself as a profiler, so to speak, but I'd be curious what you think of that, Tim. I wish. <laughs> I mean, well, it's, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's true. It's, what we're doing is we're that the groundswork is right there as far as podcasting goes yeah i mean i think we're a far cry from any professional profilers well let's let's not hold on i don't want to make it seem like i said we we need you know give us our degrees in criminal profiling (laughs) i said what we're doing right now is breaking the surface of of profiling right i think uh as as the outsider talking about your podcast and and your work I would consider, I don't know about profile, definitely investigative journalists, but what I, uh, who you remind me of the most, and I, I think I mentioned this to you, Tim, but my favorite book, uh, especially my favorite true crime book, is the 1966 book In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Now, I recommend, Amazing. yeah, I recommend it, Tim, read it. Um, but when I first got into your show, well, when I first, when I first listened to the first couple episodes, I immediately thought of that book where, what you're doing reminds me a lot of what Truman Capote did. He initially set out to cover this specific, in his case, it was a quadruple murder of a, a family in Kansas. And he was interviewing the various people and he was kind of on the ground in, in Kansas, you know, describing the um, the setting of, of this crime and whatnot. And his descriptions of the various events were almost poetic and i think your show not to um i think your show is is very well done you're well spoken the music's great the production's great um but anyway but with truman capote and in cold blood he intended to be kind of an impartial outsider just telling the story but as the, the events unfold he just found himself kind of in the middle with a personal connection with the various players and you've already described john smith and james renner as you know your friends and these great guys that you know would give you the shirt off their back and all that and i think a lot like truman capote in the book in cold blood I think you're kind of doing a very similar thing, except the modern version of it, because you're doing it as a podcast instead of writing, you know, a true crime book. But I, even the deeper you, I get into your show, and, and the more episodes you release, I just more and more I think of In Cold Blood. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I haven't heard the direct comparison to In Cold Blood, but I've often thought it myself, just uh, knowing the story and knowing what uh, Truman Capote um, kind of put himself through to to do that. Hopefully. Hopefully we hopefully we have the energy to do other podcasts after this because he had a hard time writing after he did uh, In Cold Blood. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a, a few years that you haven't covered much else. That's true, uh, but we are uh, laun- in the middle of launching a new podcast, so uh, hopefully it will give us the, the freedom to cover many more cases uh, in-depth and not as in-depth. And that wasn't a planned segue, by the way. I just want to put that <laughs> That was definitely not a planned segue. <laughs> Yeah, I I think it was before we connected. Tim was like, "You, what, the way we're going to do it, Jordan, is you give me like a really good compliment, and then I'll segue it into my new show." <laughs> we'll and I was just like, "Sure." <laughs> this roundabout, this roundabout way. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, you can follow us on Twitter at Crawlspace Pod, and episode <laughs> one is coming out on Wednesday. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling... 
you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. talk about a couple of the stories that you've covered on your uh, podcast, Jordan. The first one I, I was texting Lance about. I said, you got you to gotta check this story out because it's it's really just insane. And uh, Bernard Langell, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what happened when you were producing these uh, these episodes on this uh, on this man? Yeah. And this story is crazy and it was almost unbelievable. In fact, when I first heard the story, before I decided to cover it, I was kind of double checking all the information to make sure the story was real. Basically, the Coles Notes version is there was a guy on Twitter who decided, and he's from my my hometown of Halifax. He decided to share his family's story, and he started tweeting the story of his grandfather's um, unexplained and mysterious death that happened. You know, I, I think in '68 is when it happened. Um, Anyway, and the, and the story was so fascinating. People started tagging me saying, like, you should talk to this guy and have him on your podcast. So I got in touch with him, and, and that's how the initial thing started. But basically what had happened in, in this case is – so this guy, my guest, his name is Bernie. He is investigating his grandfather's unexplained death that happened in the late 60s on a military base uh, in New Brunswick, which is a province very uh, next door to Nova Scotia where I'm from. Basically what the story is – um, and basically what the mystery is, is Bernie, the grandson, he, he doesn't entirely know what had happened because a lot of the work done was done by his uncle who has since passed away. So the family doesn't really know what had happened, but what they do know is that his grandfather had a couple friends over, uh, told his, um, they're playing cards and whatnot. He told his wife to, uh, I'm going to drive my buddies home. You just go to bed and I'll come back and meet you soon. The grandfather left. The wife went to bed. The wife woke up in the middle of the night. She felt sticky and realized when she looked next to, in the bed next to her, she saw her husband um, covered in blood with his, you know, with severe injuries to his head. They brought him to the hospital. Uh, they were worried whether or not he'd make it, so they airlifted him to a bigger hospital um, in Nova Scotia. When he got off the airplane, they put him in an ambulance, and here's where things really start to get weird, is as the ambulance is making its way to the hospital, uh, the ambulance is hit by a train. They don't know at this point what led to the train getting getting hit. There's all these various stories. Some Some people believe that the ambulance driver was drunk. Others have various theories. Anyway, they he survived the, um, the the ambulance getting hit by the train. Another ambulance took him to the hospital. And where it really gets weird is when they're in the hospital, somebody says to um, Bernie's grandfather, who's in the hospital's wife, they say, I can't believe the news about the accident. And she said, yeah, like, you know, it's crazy that a train hit the ambulance. And they're like, no, no, we're talking about at the hospital in New Brunswick. So before he was airlifted to um, to Halifax, where he was, where the ambulance was hit by a train. And when she said, what accident, you know, what are you talking about? And she said, it's all over the news in New Brunswick. Um, a doctor was seen, you know, attacking your husband and he was arrested and it's all over the news. And ended up, it ended up uh, a nurse had walked in, you know, the night he was brought in, a nurse had walked in on the doctor hitting him 
and choking him, saying something to the effect of, you're going to die tonight, Langell. Uh, she found this out at the, the hospital in Nova Scotia a day later. Uh, he ended up passing away the next day. But what's come out since is um, we began investigating it, and what we were doing is we were going through news reports, trying to get old newspapers, basically to corroborate the details of the story because a lot of what he got was from his elderly grandmother and just kind of through second- and third-hand stories to the family. So first we were trying to find out if it even actually happened, and we had very little luck. Uh, we were finding nothing in the newspapers um, from this era about the train crash, the doctor, or even his initial injuries. All we really found was an obituary. But he did have a few papers and documents related to um, related to it. And by he, I mean Bernie, my guest, who was investigating his grandfather's injuries. The, the, the papers all had the name of a lawyer named Chris Stiles um, uh, mentioned on them. And what was strange was when I was looking at it, I was like, I know a Chris Stiles, but he's not a lawyer. He's a UFO researcher that was on my podcast a couple months ago. And my guest Bernie's like, that's weird. I kind of remember my dad mentioning somebody who, you know, researched UFOs. So I realized maybe it's the same guy. And I emailed him. And the UFO researcher from a past episode of my show, sure enough, uh, in his youth, he worked as a paralegal and represented Bernie's grandmother uh, when suing when suing the Canadian government. He had told me that, all the answers to all the questions that we're looking for relating to what happened are all contained within a folder that my guest Bernie's uncle had maintained up until his death. He was kind of the keeper of this story amongst the families. Uh, we tried all we could, and we couldn't find this folder to find the answers to all of our questions. After my episode aired, however, somebody who was listening to it, uh, another relative of my guest Bernie's, realized that he had a lot of Bernie's uncle's contents in boxes in his basement, and he went through them. And sure enough, uh, the day after the episode was released, he found the folder, which was you know about this thick with legal documents. And Bernie and I are going through it now to see how this uh, changes what Bernie believed about the case and what answers uh, for Bernie's family lie within within that folder. That's that's. Phenomenal. That is a that is a phenomenal story. That is a, a mind bending story. Are you working directly with uh, Bernie right now, the the grandson? Are you so you say you're working together with him? Are you together, like literally together with him, going through the files, or is this more like a Skype thing and over the phone thing? Um, my podcast is unique, where I'm covering mainly stories in my hometown or right in my province. So he only he doesn't live very far from me. Like when we recorded, he just came over my house and in in my basement we did an interview. Uh, at this point. Mainly what he's he's working on his own, flipping through them, going through everything. He's also in the middle of selling a house. So uh, time is uh, of the essence. Um, we plan to, once he gets his head around what differences there are from what he thought the story was versus what these documents say, that's when we're, we're really going to start together. We've just, at this point, have just been emailing back and forth copies of the documents and whatnot. I'm kind of keeping my distance because... It's it's personal because it's his own family and he doesn't know what's in these documents. So I'm giving him room to to figure it out before I uh, put my microphone in his face. Right, because as as cool as it would be to get the initial reaction, it's still a personal experience for him, and you want to respect that. So absolutely, very cool of you. That's a very Canadian thing to do. Hmm. It's an insane story. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, when is that episode, uh, the second part of that, uh, coming out? Uh, we're still working on when exactly. Um, 
I want, it's my priority and I want to get that done because I've heard a, a lot of people asking about it. But that said, I want, I want the documents to be poured over and all the questions that are possibly answered to be answered. So we're going to take our time with it. I don't want to rush it. Uh, I'd expect to, to do that during March, most likely early March. Great. Very cool. Are you nervous at all about what you might find in these documents? Do you think that there might be some government conspiracy going on there? Because he was on a military base, he said. Well, it is possible. Uh, some people have the theory, and some people within his family have the theory that he was murdered for something he either overheard or walked into or was involved in. And there is evidence of it because the military base that he was that he was stationed on, um, they were involved in the Agent Orange, the weapon, the chemical weapon. And there's still lawsuits to this day for people who were affected by the the storage and usage and research into Agent Orange in this military base. His family and some members of his family, I should say, believe that his death was directly related to Agent Orange, which would have been on the base during the time. And it was highly controversial and on the base during the time that all this had happened. There was also, um, since I've covered it, a lot of people have been emailing me from the area um, with other information. And there was another unexplained um, murder slash death that happened very near that military base not long after that some people believe was also related to government secrets. There are conspiracy theorists that love to to believe and look into things like that. It is possible. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna discount it just because it's a conspiracy theory. But I don't know. I think those that whatever's in that folder that's gonna I hope answer the questions because it said to contain a lot of legal documents. And Bernie has sent me copies of some of the documents, but mainly it's just to show like one document that he sent me was a, um, um, a, not a script, but it was like an interview with the guy who was driving the taxi or the, the ambulance. And it's all typed out. What is that? A transcript of an interview with the cab driver or the ambulance driver. And here's a spoiler. This is something that'll come out on the episode. Is it, turned out to not be an ambulance they didn't have an ambulance so what they did was they took the back seats out of a van and put his stretcher in a van and the reason he was injured when the train hit them is because a, uh, an ambulance i guess when you put the stretchers in something like holds the stretcher into place but his was just like on wheels in the back of a van uh, so that was why he was um, so badly hurt by the the train collision but the whole thing is crazy and it's all, you know, it all happened. It's just a matter of why. And hopefully that's that's in the folder. I think of all my episodes, the ones that would um, that would resonate most with listeners of your show is the coverage I did of Emma Filipov's case. We've already talked about it a few times. Um, there's a lot of similarities with with Mora's disappearance, but there's there's a lot of differences between my coverage of Emma and your coverage of of Mora Murray. The the main one being that, well, the the main few being that 
Emma's case is a, is a lot fresher than Mora's. Emma disappeared now just five years ago as opposed to Mora's 13. So there's still a lot of, um, you know, firsthand witnesses to the various events that are, you know, that are there willing to talk. Um, for one, I have um, unlike, well, I shouldn't say unlike your show, but one one thing that I've been very fortunate with is that I've had her mother's support. She appeared on three episodes of my show covering her daughter, Emma's disappearance. And I also have the support of a lot of the people working with her mother, investigating it and whatnot. So it's, it's just making it easy, easier to get access to, to people close to, to Emma's story. Even her friends have been open and willing to speak to me. It seems like when I listen to your show, you're having, um, obviously having a difficulty getting to the people that were, you know, were there the days leading up to it and whatnot. Unlike in Emma's case, I've had, um, there's one guy who's, uh, who's seen to be one of the main suspects. And I use air quotes when I say suspects, people have their reasons to suspect him for being involved. Um, his name is Julian. There was a major documentary about this case that called finding Emma that really pointed the finger at Julian and when I had mentioned him on an episode, uh, the second episode that included you both, I got an email from him and like the next day he was, you know, willing to be interviewed by me. So the third episode of my coverage of Emma's disappearance is just a conversation between me and the main suspect, Julian. So it's really been a when I'm listening to your show and comparing it with my experience with covering Emma Filipov, it's almost worlds apart. Um again, be it the access to, to the various people, but even the, Emma's mother and the people working closely with her, they're very proactive in trying to crowdsource their investigations. They, they put all their information online for people to go over and, you know, and develop theories with. Um, they have the Help Find Emma discussion group on Facebook where, you know, Emma's mother's in there every day talking to people and responding and, answering questions about Emma's disappearance to help people try to come up with theories as to, as to what happened. So it's, it's a lot different than what, what you went through, but people who listen to your show, I think will be interested in my coverage of Emma. And also they'll get to hear you both because you appear in the second episode. It sounds like the people that you've uh, experienced and had uh, dealings with Still, and maybe it has something to do with the five years versus 13 years, but it sounds like they still give a shit and they're not caught up in their own lives. Absolutely. My most recent episode is uh, an episode is an interview with Emma's childhood best friend. And she shared with me a lot of stories of Emma growing up and helped describe Emma's personality and the interview led right up until Emma's disappearance and she was open and, you know, and willing to share all that with me. And she seemed happy to do it. Although it's, you know, it's heartbreaking to hear and very emotional, but just their openness and willingness to share the stories with the ultimate goal of spreading awareness of Emma's story and Emma's mother's plight and her search for, for her daughter. Um, it's inspirational to watch to watch them try to help each other, but also it's it's heartbreaking and you have to be very sensitive, as I'm sure you're both aware. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, even in the worst case scenario in all of these missing women cases, all of the awareness that you talk about and all of the talk and, and the interviews that you do, 
even if the worst case scenario happened, you've still made things public and made people aware. Like Emma had, you're pretty confident Emma had a form of um, uh, a, a mental disorder. She she was suffering from some form of a mental disorder. At least that becomes like awareness for that particular mental disorder. Or in Brianna's case, Brianna Maitland, it, it, even in the worst case scenario, at least it would raise awareness for, and I'm, you know, I know that there's theories about um, it being a, a drug related uh, circumstance, but it would raise awareness for it, even in the worst case scenario. For like not getting into heavy drugs or, or getting involved with people like that is what you're or, saying. Or sort of. It's more like that town that, that, you know, a lot of those small towns in, in the Northeast, the you know, the Vermont towns, the northern New Hampshire, even on the other side of the country in, in uh, Oregon and, and Washington State, you know, there maybe more awareness should go into how we educate our, the, the youth of that, you know, the, the schooling, the, just the, the overall awareness just needs to be there. A lot of people think that this is being done because of some ego trip or, you know, some money making scheme, but awareness for these situations can't hurt ever. Right. I think victimology actually would be a, a very good thing to teach in, in uh, high schools or certain regions. I know it might be a little, um, minute as far as criminal justice goes. So maybe it's more of a specialty thing, but it really would help a lot of people. I can't agree more with that. Are there any other instances of people online who have either harassed you or something that you've kind of noticed uh, psychologically about uh, some of the people out there? Anything you want to share in that realm? What a loaded question. Yeah. I know, what a leading question. <laughs> oh, man. Not, a, not at all. My, my uh, response from listeners has been almost unanimously positive. And I'll be honest that of the small amount of negative um, emails I've received, a good chunk of them are related to the We're Maura for James Murray. Renner. Yeah, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of them are related to the Maura Murray case, and I believe it's because of my episode with James and John. Those people are polarizing characters, and just going to say it: uh, the two of you are also polarizing characters. Uh, so of all the emails that I've I've received that were negative, it's it's generally that. Of all the the majority of my emails, ninety nine percent are people thanking me for putting my own time in and putting these stories together. And in my case, I'm covering a lot of stories from my home province in my part of the country that you won't find other podcasts cover. And a lot of it's my own personal research. So I'm getting a lot of people thanking me for you know for covering these stories that otherwise would have gone uncovered. Uh, and that is a huge motivating factor in continuing my podcast. I, if I was doing it for money, I would have quit uh, after shortly after the release of the first episode. Uh, I do it as much like the two of you as a labor of love. And uh, the majority of my listeners are very happy that I'm doing it. I'm sure because they keep coming back, listening again, and often send me nice messages and like things and retweet things. And that's just a sign that they're paying attention. 
Well, good, well, good for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lottie yeah. Sorry, yeah. I asked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I keep, I keep telling Tim we just have to say that we're we're doing this podcast from Canada. Canadians, they're so awesome. Speaking of Canadians that aren't that nice, uh, Jordan, you covered a uh, a real bastard on one of your uh, or a couple of your uh, your episodes, and uh, it was a guy named Alan Legere. And uh, Lance, I don't know if you've you've heard of this fellow, but uh, he is the real life boogeyman. And uh, Jordan, I don't know if you want to explain a little bit about uh, about this guy. Yeah, I did a, a two part series on. He's one of Canada's most notorious serial killers. They call him the Monster of Miramichi. That's the Miramichi is a river that he lived near and a town. Um, Alan Legere, basically, his story was uh, he was involved in a a, a robbery gone wrong. Uh, was sent to prison for it. While in prison, he escaped by. Um, I won't describe how on your oh, show. Please do. Please do. It's incredibly um, interesting. Well, he was he was in prison and he developed this plan to escape. So what he was doing was he'd collect his own urine and he'd put it in his ear, uh, with the idea that it would eventually lead to an ear infection and get him a ticket to the hospital. Eventually, it worked, and he had an ear infection. They brought him to the hospital, and what he had inserted into his rectum was a um, a TV antenna. So when he was in the hospital, he asked to go to the bathroom. And up until this point, he was the model prisoner. He earned their trust. They let him go to the bathroom. He removed the uh, TV antenna, because this is in the 80s, and basically just kicked, out the do- kicked open the door of the bathroom using the antenna as a improvised weapon, basically just made his way to the hospital um, he, uh, hijacked a car in the parking lot. He, with the driver of the car, as well as a, a bird and a bird cage in the back seat, he drove to basically the edge of the city where the deep, thick forest starts. Uh, cause this is a rural area. Basically just got out of the car and ran into the woods. Um, the people of the town, he was, at this point, he wasn't a notorious serial killer. There was, there was one dead from this robbery he was involved in. He escaped from prison. It wasn't a big deal. They kind of assumed he was just going to flee to another country or another part of the Canada or something, and that would be the end of it. But instead, what he did was he hid out in the woods because he was kind of like an outdoorsman. He hid out in the woods. They don't even really know exactly where he was living in the woods or what he was surviving on. But over the next roughly six months, he would come out of the woods at night, uh, usually to a home that abutted the woods. Uh, He'd come out of the woods at night, and he was committed a series of murders where he preyed on the, the the city's the town's most vulnerable which were basically uh senior citizen women and he had some really weird stuff going on where he would break into their houses uh there was sex and violence involved and ultimately what his mo was was after he murdered them he would put them in their beds and set their houses on fire uh, so he committed a series of crimes like that until it ultimately um, reached a fever pitch when he killed a, a male priest. And then it led to a cross-country manhunt. And ultimately, he was uh, he was arrested. And he's still alive and still in prison. The story's not well known outside of Atlantic Canada. Or, or outside of Canada, I should say. But if you listen to the details of those episodes, it's it's chilling. And it's pretty intense. Yeah, it's certainly chilling. I, I remember uh, hearing about your episode. Um, and so before listening to it, just doing a quick like Wikipedia um, <laughs> research on it. And it's kind of it, it's 
the 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 Wikipedia is funny because it says that he uh, something like he he concealed the antenna on his body. It doesn't give that gory detail of how he concealed it, which really speaks to the insanity. And you said he's still alive, right? He's in a um, is he in a like a super maximum prison? Yeah, and I think he's been labeled a dangerous offender, which in Canada means you're in prison indefinitely. Generally, in Canada, a life sentence is 25 years unless they can justify that you're uh, considered a dangerous offender and at such a high risk to reoffend, which gives you an indefinite sentence. And that's what he has. It's, I would think it would be unlikely if he's ever released. And one of the things that made that episode so strong was my guest was uh, Rick McLean. He's an author and a journalist who covered the case and the trial as it actually happened. He's from the area. So you're hearing the you're hearing him recount his firsthand account of of uh, of the events, so it's it's very powerful to hear him describe it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Do you think uh, is Legere like the, uh, the 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 Canadian version of Ted Bundy? Would is that a good way to kind of compare it for anybody who's listening, like the Americans who are listening? No, probably he's he's unique. Where he was preying on on senior citizen women and his MO was so strange. Even in some cases he would break into people's homes and if there wasn't a vulnerable senior citizen woman in the home, what he was doing was he'd collect their clothes. Like he must have been watching the houses because there was some homes he broke into expecting to find an old lady. If she wasn't home, what he would do is collect her clothes, put it in the bed and set the bed on fire. So there was some weird sex stuff, some weird, you know, arson stuff. And all the while, he looked like a bear, and he was living in the woods, um, living off of maybe berries and squirrels. Nobody really knows. Yeah, it's insane. I I would almost uh, compare him. I know he's not real, but I would almost compare him to uh, Michael Myers more than anybody I know, um, any serial killer that I've ever looked at or studied because of the way he hid in the woods and uh, just kind of struck whenever he felt it necessary really terrifying. It's funny you bring up Michael Myers because uh, one thing about Alan Legere's story that's uh, often discussed is this was all going on um, summer leading into fall uh, at the height of kind of the, 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 the craziness as it was all going on. Halloween came up and they knew that they didn't want people roaming around the streets with masks on. So they actually canceled Halloween uh, that year while Alan Legere was on the loose. What they did was they, uh, for the children of the town, they shipped them all to um, like a like a town hall kind of place, and they let them have like kind of a fake Halloween within town hall. But they made the rule that nobody can be outside, and that was right as um, motion censored lights became a thing. All the the town started installing motion censored lights all around their properties, and still to this day in that town, they're called Legier lights instead of like security lights. Because they were all installed for, due to Legere, people worrying he's going to come out of the woods into their house. I just got—I don't know why, but that just gave me the chills. <laughs> the, the fact that something so, yeah, something so minute is—you know—these Legere lights, three or four generations down the road, kids aren't—they're going to refer to these Legere lights, and they're—they they're, probably will think that it's the guy who invented it. And then once they hear the real story, it's goddamn terrifying. How do you think that works, that that law where a the maximum sentence in Canada is 25 years? It seems to me here in America there are many people that I am glad cannot get out after 25 years. That's 25 years is not enough 
for a lot of the the crimes that happen that I know of. How do you feel that that works in Canada? In a lot of cases, I don't like it. But ultimately, the whole point of of the system is to rehabilitate the people. So I think it's it puts the um, it puts the attention on rehabilitation, and in twenty five years, they could you know they they should be all better and able to come out and exist in society. In a lot of cases, that may be true. Like maybe let's say you take some. 18 year old who was robbing a store and and shot somebody or something maybe now 25 years later they're rehabilitated and ready to go but someone like Alan Legere is never going to get better and it's it's funny we had talked about the episodes I've done on the McDonald's murders that happened just about 25 years ago um the people responsible for that some are already out of prison due to good behavior um the others are well on their way out because it's the 25 anniversary I think that the justice system in Canada needs to be harder on criminals. I read too many stories in the paper about re- repeat offenses. And as a as a parent and a family man who lives among um, uh, lives among society, I, I think the, the law should be harsher. And personally, I think if you are able to kill somebody, uh, 25 years isn't a long time. Yeah, the whole subject speaks to a much greater topic of the criminal justice system, how we approach the prison system, overpopulation in the prison system, what people are going to jail for, what they're getting out for, how much money you have when you're going in, what kind of lawyer you have. Like, it's a whole cosmos of, <laughs> of, of circumstances. Um, and yeah, I, the 25-year the cutoff is... Seems seems like a nice convenient number, but I gotta say, at 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 least you have it. At least at least you have that number. There's so many people in our jail system right now that probably j- should be released, and there's so much money that's sunk into that. But then again, there's so many people that should never be released. So it just speaks to the whole rehabilitation uh, process. Yeah, one thing about the 25 year thing, it, we call it a life sentence, but. I don't know exactly how it works in the States, but I believe when your sentence is over, that's it. You're like a free man or woman or or whatever. But in Canada, a life sentence is still for your life. You spend 25 years in prison. But I think what happens is when you when you get out, if you do anything wrong, it's you're back in prison. Uh, Like if you if you're charged with another crime or whatnot, you're back in prison for your original murder conviction. I don't know exactly how that all works on my episodes with the about the McDonald's murders. My guest, uh, he's a journalist, Fonz Jessam, and also a, a role model of mine. Um, he described it well, but he also described it as saying, "Here in Canada, the first the first murder will cost you, but the rest are free." And that was kind of eerie to think about. Because that is really eerie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean re- rehabilitation is great, but uh, until you can dictate a hundred percent who a dangerous psychopathic criminal is it's always iffy like they were lenient on alan legere um when he was just trying to trick them and that's because he's a psychopath it's not you know he 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 was smart enough to manipulate them in order to get out to kill again yeah i think erring on the side of caution when it comes to somebody who killed some people is definitely definitely the way to go
All right, that was a good conversation there with Jordan. I enjoyed it. Uh, Jordan, I think, is a great guy, and I really like his podcast. He tells some interesting stories. A lot of weird things happen in Atlanta, Canada. Yeah, really, right? Like Canada, I, I love Canada. I love going to Canada. And it's funny that he says that he focuses on, on these weird mysteries in, in his neighborhood and in his town and the surrounding neighborhoods. It's like nonstop, though, like real <laughs> weird stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, just a, just a good guy. Very articulate. Uh, excellent podcast. Yeah, check out the Nighttime Podcast, and while you're at it, check out the Crawl Space Podcast that is premiering tomorrow, Wednesday, February 1st. So check it out on all your platforms. Follow us on Twitter. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Links are in the show notes. Tim, what is this Crawl Space Podcast I keep hearing about? Oh, my God. You are going to be blown away by it, Lance. Yeah, you and wow. uh, and all the listeners out there. I mean, I guess maybe you won't because you know what it is. You've heard it. You 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 said it. The words did come out of my mouth <laughs> during of during yeah. recordings of it. Yeah, okay. That's cool. That's cool. Does this crawl space podcast follow cases the way the Maura Murray case was followed? You will be pleasantly surprised if you are expecting that. So check out Crawl Space Podcast. And next week, we will be back with John Smith to follow up with him on how his investigation is going and also to talk about the upcoming 13-year anniversary of Mora's disappearance. Thank you very much for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.